and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 170. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Adam Bomash. Hi, Kip. It's such an honor to be here. Well, the honor is mine as well, and today we're going to be talking about a film called God on Trial, which is a Holocaust film. And there are a few disclaimers I'd like to make personally before we delve further into the conversation. One, I am not, nor is my family Jewish, and this is one of few Holocaust films that I have watched. And also, while, as always, we're going to attempt to craft a conversation that listeners could follow with or without watching the film, we would encourage you to go and watch this film, which is very interesting. You can find it on YouTube, which is how Adam and I watched it, and we'll include a link to this and other material in the episode notes. But Adam, since you brought this film to me, which I'm very grateful for, how would you like to begin this conversation? Well, Kip, let's start with some context. So this film, God on Trial, as the title suggests, is about a single barracks in Auschwitz in which the prisoners decide to give voice to their anger, their confusion, and their pain by putting their God on trial. This actually did happen. Elie Wiesel has stated that he bore witness to three rabbis debating this very topic one night when he was in Auschwitz. It didn't involve an entire barracks worth of people, but that just adds to the beauty of the film. The other thing I want to mention is that the writer of this film is Frank Cottrell Boyce, who is, in fact, Roman Catholic himself. So to your point about how consumers of this film might not be Jewish, I see that as part of the beauty of this film. This was written by a Roman Catholic who, as you watch this film, very clearly not only grappled with his own faith, but grappled and did his research about the Jewish faith. And this film raises a lot of universal questions that every person of faith needs to ask themselves in this post-Holocaust world. So the more Gentiles who are exposed to this film, the better, in my opinion. Those are two pieces of uh, context that I wanted to add for this conversation. And I'm really grateful that you did. I'm also glad that you make references to beauty, because that was one of the most fascinating thoughts I had throughout my film-watching experience with God on Trial, that despite the grotesque, horrific, terrifying, and in certain cases, unimaginable circumstances of this film, and of course, the Holocaust as a whole, it felt philosophically exciting, if I might use that word. And it produced a great deal of discomfort in me that as someone who loves philosophy, there are so many questions, ideas, and arguments brought up during this trial and by this film, each of which seems to deserve years of examination, further thought, and reflection of all kinds. That's something I would encourage listeners to consider if and when they watch the film and maybe get back to us on your experience, because though it is a film, it's tied to a very real and very dark period of human history that for all of its tragedy may illuminate some facts about the human condition, about existence on Earth as a species. Absolutely, Kip. And I just want to say that in terms of Holocaust films, I've watched a lot of Holocaust films, and this has to be my favorite. It is an absolute underappreciated gem of a film, and that's because there are a lot of Holocaust films that capture the physical destruction of the Holocaust. You have Schindler's List, The Pianist, plenty of documentaries to talk about Auschwitz and the death camps and the concentration camps and the labor camps. You have films that cover the mental destruction, the psychological destruction of the Holocaust in the form of Sophie's Choice. But no film that I've found 
more beautifully captures and articulates the spiritual destruction of the Holocaust. And I just want to read this quote by Elie Wiesel to really capture what this time period meant for a lot of Jews. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget those flames, which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams into dust. Never. And he just captures what it was like, what kind of challenge or repudiation this event was for so many of their faith. And there's no film that captures that destruction more eloquently than God on Trial. This film asks of us, of everyone, to question our faith in the context of the Holocaust everyone who is of faith has to deal with this question, I think. And there's no film that more beautifully and more philosophically deals with that. And it does it in such a Jewish way for a people to which the statement for every two Jews, there are three arguments, is as much a statement of truth as it is a joke. There is no film like this. There is a charge that's put forward. They even debate the charge, and it's a charge of God breaking his covenant with the Jewish people, not merely just of murder and genocide, but that he broke his covenant with the people. And the very fact that we can question God is even questioned in this film. So I definitely recommend people watch this film and think of the philosophical implications that are challenged in this film. There's an entire literature built around the questions raised in this movie called Holocaust Theology. So let's get into the meat of this movie. I've watched this film so many times that for me, it's more interesting for me to ask this question of you, Kip. Which of the many arguments put forward in this film did you find the most compelling or the most challenging for you? Well, it's a really good question to ask. And frankly, I don't know if I was convinced fully by any of these arguments. And I would contend that's one of the most profound discomforts in the film, that all of these men in the barracks, and they are all male prisoners in the case of this film, are confronting their difficulty with the circumstances, but none of the answers seem to fully contain their frustration, their agony, their horror. And so I don't know that any of the arguments are meant to completely compel. It seems almost as though they are put forward by men attempting to be reasonable and employing rationality, but recognizing on some level they can only go so far because there really is not an explanation that I think would satisfy anyone when faced with these circumstances. And perhaps I'm wrong. There may be listeners or people in the world who would say, here is the satisfactory answer. But that was a pervasive feeling for me. Yeah, absolutely. It's really funny because it's so clear how Frank Cottrell brought Boyce did his research, because every one of the arguments actually put forward in this film is an argument that has been argued before by Holocaust theologians from the God as surgeon argument that the defense puts forward to the atheist's argument and to the final argument by Rabbi Akiva, which is perhaps the one that touched me most of all, which is that God's not good. So every one of these arguments has been well thought out, but none of them can really touch the sheer destructive horror of this event. Exactly. And as far as an argument which may have touched me the most, at one point, discussing the concept of sacrifice, one of the prisoners offers that if the Holocaust is a proving sacrifice of sorts, arranged by God, then to stand against Hitler, who in this case of course represents anyone propagating the Holocaust, would be to stand in God's way, and yet none of them can fathom 
not opposing Hitler's actions, which I think was especially difficult to wrap my head around in many ways because there are so many relationships there which seem to oppose one another and to act in self-defense would appear to be acting against one's God. And yet if God was the individual or source of life, of Jewish life and other life, then you're not only going against your faith, but against your creator. And so there's arguments of lack of gratitude there. And also if there is a divine plan, you are in certain cases presuming yourself to be greater than it if you are rebelling against it. But on the other side, who wouldn't understand being faced with slaughter and hoping to preserve oneself, and in many cases, one's family? There's a very troubling anecdote, which as you pointed out to me, makes reference to Sophie's choice, where a father in this barracks tells the other men that as his three boys were being taken away, he cried out to a German officer in the truck saying, please, please give me back my children. And the officer pauses and says, pick one of them and he will be allowed to go free. And in my mind, knowing the darkness surrounding this era, I didn't imagine that the man would actually have a choice. And I thought that if he picked one of his sons, the officer might kill all three boys in front of him just to prove a sadistic point. And perhaps that's where my mind immediately goes when facing these circumstances. And so even indirectly, I can imagine how hard it would be to think with any positivity in this circumstance. And I think rationality often requires that we be able to imagine, to empathize beyond ourselves. And what I observed in this film, again, as someone who is not Jewish and never suffered a fate as terrible as this, is that it must have been limiting in a way that I don't think I could fully appreciate. And so something I'd love your thoughts on is the fact that when faced with this atrocity and this tragedy of unimaginable proportions, that these individuals were still able to conduct themselves not only as human beings, but with a societal framework, a court of law that they created within this prison I think it's admirable in a way that I don't know I can put into words, because I would completely understand giving up in those circumstances, giving into fear, etc. But even on a more neutral level of trying to survive and maybe accepting your fate, that doesn't even seem to quite match the strength of saying, I'm going to try and figure this out. We have to come up with any semblance of an answer, any sort of logical response as human beings to what seems to be the most inhumane of circumstances. Well, you raise a lot of very good points. What I will say to that is, in regard to the whole society contained in this barracks idea, that was the whole purpose of these concentration camps and these death camps. And that's a point that's raised in the movie, is that these camps were designed to rob you of your agency, of your will to live It was designed to not just take your hopes away, but it was designed to make you feel inhuman. And so, in a way, the fact that they're doing this so logically, so rationally, so civilly, is in one instance not just a form of resistance against their god, it's also a form of resistance against their torturers. In this barracks, which is designed to dehumanize them, they are taking back their humanity by questioning their god. And again, this is why I love this movie so much. There's nothing more Jewish than that. As one person pointed out, Jacob wrestled with the angels. It is in Jewish tradition to question our God. 
to your point about purification and is it right to oppose God if he is our surgeon, that is just to offer some context for our listeners. The argument suggested by the defense is that to explain the Holocaust, to understand the Holocaust, is that it's an act of purification by God. He suggests that God is a surgeon and he's cutting off a gangrenous leg. And the prosecution shouts, by that logic, Hitler is acting in God's plan. And to resist Hitler is to resist God. Now, isn't that just insane? And what I think he's saying there is, who would worship a God who would make someone as evil as Hitler his hand? And there's a lot of contradictions just in that one argument that I think, and again, I have my own opinions on this film, and I'm going to, you know, make my case. I ultimately believe that God is guilty in this, and I don't know, I don't think that there is an argument that can reasonably defend God in the case of the Holocaust and in the case of all genocides that have happened since then. But some of these contradictions are, if Hitler is acting in God's plan, are the Allies resisting God? We all know that Hitler's intent was to destroy the Jewish people, to wipe them out. Now, they mention that God's covenant with the Jewish people is that the Jewish people will survive. Are we resisting God when we resist Hitler? Maybe it's the allies who are also acting in God's hand. Maybe God is pitting these two sides against each other. But if that's true, there's another contradiction, because in that case, the only people who have no agency are the Jews. And this is raised as a point in the film. What does that say about free will? God gave us free will. And this is a point of defense that the defense raises. God gave us free will. But this place, this Auschwitz, is designed to rob us and pervert our free will. So there's so many contradictions just in that one statement that God is a surgeon that I think, and a lot of people have found to be very disheartening, very worrying if that's the case. And I want to raise the question, if God gave us free will which is continuously used as a defense for why God does not intervene in things as terrible as the Holocaust. If God gave us free will, though, he either continues to intervene, if indeed Hitler is acting according to God's will, then God is intervening. Why would he give us free will if he wants us to behave in a certain way? Or, if it's not the case, if he gave us free will, surely he must have known that he would have to earn our worship. And then my question is, has God done anything to earn our worship in the context of the Holocaust. So I think there's a lot of contradictions that not not only this film raises that we have to question, that we have to ask ourselves, but that in themselves are contained in this film. So I throw this back to you. The idea of free will is raised. What is your response to that, to, to the idea of free will? Well, at least within the context of the film, I feel like a lot of the arguments put forward and the circumstances disprove the idea of free will in many ways. As one example, one of the men refers to stolen goods in the camp, and in this case, shoes in particular, that many of the men, if not all of them, are wearing, and says that's what this place is for, to make us all criminals. And Adam, earlier you had mentioned, which I quite agree with, that the purpose of these camps was to dehumanize these prisoners, and you see them naked in many cases, and even when they are clothed, they are packed tightly together, they are beaten. I don't think I need to elaborate on the ways in which they are dehumanized, but to be criminal, I think, is to remain human, however, on the fringes of humanity, at least as our lawful societies tend to deem who and what criminals are. And so this idea that stolen goods make these men criminals by association was very fascinating because only one of the men may have stolen these shoes, 
but many of them still wear these shoes, and one of the elder men, who is particularly faithful, says, then I must be a criminal, because the scriptures say that thievery is wrong, and so I must be guilty. And I mention all of this in relationship to free will, because I think that individuals may be free, but we act as a society, whether we act criminally, whether we abuse or neglect certain populations, And I'm not saying that individuals cannot act within a society, but in my perception, free will operates almost like inertia. And if society is a bowling ball headed in one direction, to be an individual who wants to alter that direction is not impossible, but more difficult as that bowling ball gains or perhaps maintains its mass. And it's worth mentioning criminality once again because the German officers of this camp appoint a criminal to control this particular barracks. And at one point he makes a statement to the prisoners and says, To stay alive, I have to please the Nazis because what's going to kill me? They are. How do I stop them? By pleasing them. And this may sound like a small argument or as though he's referring to a very specific circumstance. However, I believe that is a clear reference to appeasing a more merciless God and saying, I may not know what God is, but if I believe he or it, however you might refer to God, to be almighty, and I don't want to be completely and utterly destroyed, I should attempt to please that entity. And I think that's another complicated element when we talk about free will because we may be free to walk a certain path. But if we know at the end of that path, we face a force we cannot overcome and that force might intervene at any point along the path to terminate it before we thought the path was concluded. And when that happens, the force is still greater than we are then perhaps free will may only exist in the most minute of moments, that you can determine your trajectory or path only very slightly before God or other forces greater than human beings intervene. And of course, the film is very complicated on that issue, and I don't know that it leans one way or the other, but I would be especially interested to know what reading you have on free will as it is described by the film and the events within it. Well, I think you raise a lot of interesting points. The way you put all that kind of opened my eyes to looking at this film in another way. Part of the reason why I love this film, every time you watch it, there's something new to gain out of it. But what you said about how you can see this film as almost a microcosm of society. The thing about this film is that there's a very clear trajectory in the logic and the argument that they're leading towards. It's all leading towards that final argument, the nail in God's coffin, as it were, in the movie's eyes. The final nail, which is Rabbi Akiva, who we all expect when he finally explodes. We see Anthony Schur, who's a phenomenal actor, kind of davening constantly in the corner. And we expect him when he finally explodes at the end to offer this definitive defense of God. But he doesn't. He offers the final nail in God's coffin when he says, God is not good. And one of the clear logical trajectories that this film is working towards is that in this place, God and the Nazis are synonymous with one another. So the point that Anthony Scherr is making is that God has made a new covenant with the Nazis. Gott mit uns, God is with us, the Nazis proclaim, the top of the sign at Auschwitz. That raises the question then for the Jews in this place, what is the point of worshiping a God who has chosen the Nazis, our mortal enemy, as his chosen people now who switched? Why would we ever worship someone like this? This is why I say God has to earn our worship. And I don't think he has. 
when I talk about God in this case, when we talk about God, we're referring to the monotheistic conception of God of the Abrahamic religions, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, in which God is all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, and good. When I say that I'm a passive atheist, that's what I mean, is I reject that version of God. And this is something that the movie God on Trial challenges us to ask, which is why would we ever worship a God who treats the Nazis as his chosen people? And now I want to move from that to the point that you made about this being almost a little microcosm of society. What I find so interesting about that point is if we do look at this little courtroom as a microcosm of society, almost like how Plato in the Republic uses his own microcosm of a city to refer to all of humanity, what I find so interesting is that if we see the Nazis as God in this case, then who are the worshippers? The Blockartesta. He's the most fanatical in that he is worshipping God, the Nazis, for the sake of his own skin. I find that really interesting. That kind of throws faith into a completely different light. Now, if you see God as the Nazis, who are worshippers of the Nazis? Who are faith-based worshippers? In that sense, the Blockotesta are all people of faith, which I find really troubling and I find really interesting as a point. Now, you wanted to ask me what I thought of free will in that case. I'm one of those people who thinks that the idea of free will is a contradiction in terms, because God gives us a very clear set of commandments to live by, but then tells us to, this is just in the Old Testament, but then tells us that we have free will. And if we are supposed to live by these commandments that God gave us, how do we have free will? If he punishes us, which he does on a number of occasions, if he punishes us for not following those commandments, how do we have free will? If he is there to constantly redirect us and tell us how we should live our lives, that's not free will, in my opinion. That's why you know, I think this film challenges a lot of the old Abrahamic conceptions of God, of Godhood. Tied to this idea of commandments and direction, there's a really interesting quotation given at the beginning of the film when this tour guide in the present day is showing a group of tour takers around and says in the room where the prisoners were selected to either go to the left or to the right, no one knew the criteria for selection, so everyone was afraid. And I immediately took that quotation as, again, another microcosmic statement that I think in life, whether during the Holocaust or otherwise, without direction, without an understanding of the criteria, the guidelines under which we live, many of us naturally become uncomfortable. If you're meeting someone and you don't know how to interact with them, are you allowed to shake their hand, to hug them? What topics are you allowed to discuss? Without knowing that, many of us very naturally shift into discomfort. And of course, in these circumstances, it's far more grave and serious than meeting someone you've never met. But I think there is value in that. And perhaps that quotation lays the groundwork for the trial that God, whether he, it, etc., is guilty or not, the lack of clarity on where that entity stands during this grim time is what precipitates the trial, because that covenant or that statement of stance and perspective is not made clear. And it's also very interesting that one of the tour takers says, before we begin the trial in the past during the film, they tried the person they felt was most responsible. And this tour taker uses the word person when I think most of us would say God is not a person, whether you believe or not in a God or in the monotheistic Abrahamic God, most of us would say that entity is above people in many categories. And so I find that very, very interesting 
And that line is further blurred by the Blockotesta, who says early on in our introduction to him during the film, well, in here, I'm in charge. I'm king, the president, the Fuhrer, and then he hesitates before saying God, which I find to be perplexing because those leaders, although in different countries and nations, may be analogous to one another, I don't think the God comparison really fits. And so it's fascinating to watch this film and see that in the court of law, as established within this barracks, God is almost treated like a person. And there are other details there I'd love to come back to, but I'd really love to hear your take on how Godhood and personhood are blurred, especially in the early moments of this film before the trial has officially begun. Well, Kip, it's really funny that you should bring all that up because there is something at the very end of this film that troubles me, and I have no answer to it. So I'm going to raise this question to you. I'm going to raise it to our audience. I'd love to hear people's thoughts on it. But you raised the point about the selection process, how no one knows the precise criteria. And at the end of the film, who gets chosen? People who previously were stated to go on both the left and the right side. The son who plays the prosecution gets selected and not the father who was expecting to be chosen this whole time. The loud and foul-mouthed man who initially brings up the idea that God should be on trial. He was so confident throughout this entire thing that he was sent to the side where he would survive. But at the end, he was chosen to die. And there's one thing that runs through all these people who got chosen. They were the people who questioned God. The prosecution who puts God on trial. The man who initially brings the charges forward. The judge who allows this to happen and constantly says that God is guilty. The atheist. These are the people who get chosen to die. None of the people who get chosen to die are the people who stood by their faith this entire time. I don't think that's by accident. So I want to put that as a question. Why would Frank Cottrell Boyce write that moment into the film? Why would he choose the people who questioned God to die and the people who didn't question God to survive? Is that God working in the background? Or is that the Nazis playing God? And I want to bring this back again to the point about the selection. The whole point of that was to make the Nazis feel like God in that instance. You say that the Blockotesta's comparison to God was inappropriate. I say it's entirely appropriate. In that moment, doesn't he have the power of life and death? Don't the Nazis have the power of life and death? This is a point that the atheist makes. Isn't Hitler God in Auschwitz? Again, this all comes back to my question, which is, is God worthy of our worship if this is how he chooses to act? There's a lot of moments in this film that if you blink, you'll miss them, but they raise a lot of deeper questions about faith in a post-Holocaust world. So I put those questions to you. Why would Frank Cottrell Boyce write that little moment in there? Well, I think on an existential level, where we as human beings may never have a concrete answer to some of our deeper existential questions, perhaps the best we can do is continue to walk a certain path, whether that is faith or faithlessness. And I think as a storytelling species, one of the best ways we can motivate ourselves is by keeping that carrot dangling in front of us and giving ourselves the impression that faith may ultimately answer our questions. And so as a filmmaker, perhaps his decision was to say, though I respect or can understand the philosophical accusations leveled towards God, I have to side with those who remain faithful 
if not because I actually agree with them, because I would like to agree with them, and because as human beings I think however skeptical we might be of the faithful, it is comforting to think that there may be answers to our questions, that we may be rewarded for certain behaviors, and that there may actually be points of origin and conclusion that can make sense of the absolute insanity that many of us experience over the course of our millennia-long existence as a species. And so I think that's why he may have made an artistic decision like that. If that was Boyce's intention, it's very troubling for me because I don't think it was Boyce's place to pick that side in the end. This whole film is about how legitimate it is to question God. If this is indeed his decision, as if God is playing with these people, I think if that was indeed his intention, I think what that means is that God was not, in fact, listening in that moment. The whole idea of this trial was to make God listen to their cries. And if he chose the people who were questioning him, I think that proves that God wasn't listening. I choose to believe, my interpretation is that it was, in fact, a final portrayal of the Nazis as God in this moment because they've set up these arbitrary rules of selection, playing God. They've set up these arbitrary rules, which they themselves choose to contradict at the very end. That just shows how powerful they are in that moment. They have the power of life and death, and they can use that as arbitrarily as they want. And that itself raises troubling ideas about faith. So I definitely see the logic of that interpretation. I see it as troubling, but I don't think there is an easy answer to the question, just as there's no easy answer to any of these questions. I leave it to our listeners to debate that question, why were the faithless and the questioners chosen to die at the very end and not the faithful? And I completely respect that you're troubled by that interpretation. I think one of the challenges posed by the film, and of course by the Holocaust which preceded this artistic interpretation, is that there may not be any conclusion which is not troubling. And I know I've said something similar previously, but it remains a cloud which hangs over this film. And there was another quotation in the film which I think speaks directly to God, but also speaks to how we as people interact with one another. And a member of the prosecution says, referring to God, we're not concerned with his mind, but his covenant, because another individual defending God had said, we cannot possibly know God's mind. And I think that this philosophical approach is the root of many of our problems in society because we aren't necessarily interested in other people's minds or what actually goes on in their heads so much as we are interested in how that manifests in our lives and how their thoughts might translate into actions toward us. So you, Adam, as a hypothetical example, might have brilliant ideas, but if you never tell them to me, I can't necessarily care. And also, if you can't translate your ideas into a format that I can understand, you may as well not have them in certain cases, which is not a philosophy I agree with because individual minds are valuable. But I do see the point here, of course, they're referring to God and not people, that one's intentions are almost impossible to gauge, and I would argue are impossible to gauge. And it's so unfortunate because as individuals, our intentions absolutely guide how we act, how we interact. And yet in this case, in the court of law against God, his mind, his intentions, and therefore his greater vision, assuming any of these might exist, are irrelevant materials, which is a very interesting idea for me. And I think, again, places God in a position of personhood that I found very intriguing. 
Well, to the question, which I never really answered, which was your question of godhood versus personhood, I think that question is given an answer in this movie when the prosecution calls forward this good, innocent, God-fearing Jew who makes and sells gloves. And he asks, why would God punish you, a good Jew, as well as me, a bad Jew? And the defense says, the problem is to see God as acting for and against individuals. God acts for the Jewish people, not for Ezra of Zemkovitz. And the prosecution's answer to that rebuttal is, what is an impersonal God? It's just weather. And I found that point to be one of the most profound of the moment. It's a throwaway line, but it's so interesting because what difference is God from the weather if he does not act for individuals? And so we do have to judge God according to our own individual experiences. Because if he's not acting for individuals, then he's just the weather as arbitrary, as random, and as destructive as the weather. What I find really interesting is if you go back into biblical literature, how does God usually act? He acts using the weather, floods, storms. So I find that point really interesting. So I think that either God is a person with a personality, which if you read the Old Testament, he has a lot of anger management issues that he needs to deal with. And I think he does by the time of the New Testament. He's either a person or he's nothing. What's the good of a God who doesn't act for people? And again, there's a flow to this logic later on because someone says, maybe God is here suffering with us. That's a point that Liebel makes. And that's a point that a lot of Holocaust theologians have made, that God was in fact in Auschwitz being liquidated with all the people in there. But then one of the people says, well, who needs a God who suffers? Who needs a God who's just as powerless as we are? What good is that kind of God? That's something we need to ask ourselves. Is there a use for a God that suffers? Do you yourself find meaning out of a God who suffers? I personally don't. I completely understand those who do, though. And now I want to draw your attention to a point that the atheist makes, which is when he starts talking about monotheism from a sociological or anthropological perspective, there's this interesting thesis put forward in this film where he seems to think that there's almost a teleological inevitability to Hitler in monotheism itself when he says that when you conceive of God as being one thing and all-powerful, all the power concentrated into that thing, we as humans build our societies in the reflection of God's image. And so we're going to design societies in which all power is concentrated in one person. And so that leads to the Christians who believe that God loves everyone, and so everyone should be converted to Christianity, which leads the Romans to propagate Christianity abroad, which eventually leads to someone like Hitler coming along and saying, I'm God. Clearly, all the power is with me. And I find that really interesting. After all, don't we say that the Pope is God's messenger on earth? Is it such a logical leap to go from I'm God's messenger to, in fact, I am God here on earth? I find that thesis to be really interesting. I don't know if I buy it entirely because, of course, even in polytheism, you had a lot of dictators, a lot of despots. So I don't think I entirely buy it, but I think it's a really interesting idea that monotheism lends itself to these kinds of despotic organizations of society. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, I think in many ways, this comes back to free will. And if we live in a society where people are allowed to be free, evil does have a chance to take root, as does good, which I recognize may not always be as prominent. And of course, for an example of the following concept, 
take a look at news organizations and the types of news that we as people process and consider on a daily or weekly basis, we aren't told very much about volunteer organizations or medical advancements being made, scientific discoveries that may help ease the burden on our species. Instead, what news we do receive is grim, terrifying, depressing, and overall presents a burden for how we as individuals and we as a society conduct ourselves, which is not to say that that news is not valuable. But I do think to be given free will, whether by a god or otherwise, is to allow for possibility. And I believe that power often concentrates and condenses within an individual or a small group over time because we aren't comfortable with that uncertainty. And so rather than acknowledge and embrace uncertainty, one individual might say, I refuse, and I am going to present answers, whether they are completely fabricated or built upon previous lore or ideas from our ancestors. I refuse to pose a hollow question to the universe, and I will instead make a statement, and that statement is often a dictatorial or a top-down power structure with a very specific hierarchy. And I think it's somewhat ironic, but for all of the good that sacred texts have helped bring to our species, and of course there's room for debate there, I also wonder if they have presented a manual of sorts saying if you possess tremendous power, whether it rivals gods or is even a fraction of gods, this is how human beings will respond when power is used against them. And I think a clear lesson from many sacred texts though I would specify not the only lesson, is that human beings have a very strong response to fear, which is why the Old Testament God behaved in a more merciless way than he would over time, and why I think power tends to concentrate as you had described it. And of course, human history is riddled with examples of power being abused, and I don't know that I have any profound answers to that, but there is my response to your earlier question interesting. You know, this film kind of cheats a little in that it uses retrospective as ammunition for the defense, right? Hitler will die and the people will live. We all know what happened. We all know that that came true. In that courtroom, of course, they couldn't know that. And that's a point that they eventually make at the end. We have to assume that we are the last people in this room. And one of the things that they use to cheat on this is during the purification argument, the defense suggests, what if this all leads to a golden age? What if this leads to the return of Israel? And as we all know, that's exactly what happened. But I have to say this, we also know the history of the foundation of Israel. We know it's tragic and destructive and colonial history. So is it really fair to say that it led to a golden age if in order to bring about Israel's return. We had to occupy, oppress, and colonize another group of people in order to do it. I don't think that is much of a defense of the Holocaust. Well, it led to the foundation of Israel. Yeah, but what was that? It was colonial project that led to the oppression of Palestinians and created an apartheid state, and we need to deal with that. The reason why I bring this up is because it's been my experience that so many Jews especially use the Holocaust as a point of justification for Israel's existence. And that was certainly used in this movie. And so we need to deal with that point before we continue. We need to deal with the fact that the Holocaust really doesn't, I don't think, justify what the foundation of Israel has done to Palestinians. And it certainly did not bring about a golden age of peace and prosperity. 
And to say otherwise, I think, is very dangerous. And before we close this episode, what would you like the audience to consider after listening to this conversation? Well, I think we've posed a lot of questions in this conversation, so I'm just going to restate them, and then I want to pose the final question. So the questions we've asked so far is, what do you think of free will in the context of the Holocaust and in the context of this movie? What do you think of that final moment when the Nazis throw their rule book out the window and select people from both sides of the aisle, but only the people who ended up questioning God in that moment? Is God a person or an entity that we cannot fathom? The final question I want to ask people is the very basic question, is God guilty? And I'll give my answer to this. I'd like, Kip, to hear your answer to this. But just because we have one answer or another doesn't mean that you don't have your own answers. My answer to that question, is God guilty, is absolutely. I don't think that there is a good or reasonable defense for God's inaction or action during the Holocaust. In fact, a lot of Holocaust theologians have come to that conclusion that there is nothing that we can say in defense of God with regards to the Holocaust or with regards to genocide as a whole. And to my mind, that's why I consider myself a passive atheist. For me, the prospect of the existence of an all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, and guilty God is just too terrifying to deal with day to day. I'd much rather go around believing that such an entity doesn't exist. So my answer is very similar to Anthony Schur's at the very end, that God was always just powerful. Never good, just powerful and on our side. And I think that is one of the most important quotes of the film when he says, God was not ever good, he was only on our side, which to me indicates that there are at least two criteria on which one might base their faith or lack of faith in God, and it doesn't only rely on the relative goodness or lack thereof of that entity, but also his allegiance. And I think that's very interesting because one could then say, I bind myself to a bad God, but a bad God that is willing to punish others and not me and mine, which is very interesting. And I would pose that as a question to the audience, whether you happen to be religious or faithful, perhaps otherwise, where do you stand on those qualities as they might relate to worship? Of course, also, though it may sound like a broad question, I'd be very interested to know from listeners who have seen this film or hopefully may soon see this film, what you think of it, what insights you draw from it, what quotations stand out to you. And finally, as Adam, you had asked me earlier, I would love to know which arguments listeners find to be the most compelling or persuasive. And Adam, I'd like to thank you for coming on and discussing what is, of course, a very sensitive and fraught topic. But furthermore, I'd like to thank you for introducing me to a film that I found to be very thought-provoking and I intend to watch again at some point soon. Thank you so much, Kip, for agreeing to talk about this film with me. It was such a pleasure. So thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. But of course, as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So if you have any thoughts, comments, or opinions of any kind, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show, as well as supporting us on Patreon, where you'll receive perks like bonus episodes in exchange for your support. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.